The concept of Flight Bridge Ed was sparked when a growing need and a dream united into an idea. That idea grew into a passion, and from passion came a global community of providers and students joining in the revolution of pre-hospital, critical care, and emergency medicine education. Now, from around the world, we are calling our community together. We proudly announce the Flight Bridge Ed Air and Surface Transport Symposium in Wilmington, North Carolina on June 11th and 12th, 2024, with opening keynote, Scott Weingart. That's right, Mr. Mcrit himself. World-class speakers, vendors, and of course, the Flight Bridge Ed team will be there. Go to our website now to register for Fast 24. Join the revolution. The content of this podcast is based on medical fact and evidence-based practice from credible authoritative sources, but is not a substitute for your institution's policies, procedures, common sense, or good judgment. The views and opinions are those of Eric Bauer and Flight Bridge Ed in their entirety. This is the Flight Bridge Ed Podcast, critical care and emergency medicine education for nurses and paramedics. Here's your host, Eric Bauer. Hey everybody, Eric Beck with you. Today's podcast is going to be a, a podcast that I think is really going to help each one of us. Um, it's an area of concern that I've that I've identified based on emails from you. Um, areas of concern that I've identified when I was a clinical manager for Air Methods, uh, and so this is this is a podcast that's been in the works for a few years. You know, when you start seeing consistent problems, you start seeing areas like this that are bringing um, flight crews right to their knees. Right, it, it's really stressing them. It's it's really taxing them. Um, I think it's important that we share that information. We get the information out, and we try to alleviate this from happening. Obviously, we want our patient care to be as, as perfect as we can. We're never going to be perfect, but we can always strive to be perfect. So I think this is an area that we have to work on. I think pediatrics, when we hear pediatrics or we hear infant, um, that always brings the stress level up. And I think it's more of a mind game, right? We, we have some differences in our pediatric care, but we have to almost think of them as adults, right? We have to get our mind right. And I think my buddy and, and good friend, Peter Antivy, uh, talks about that all the time is we have to kind of get over that psychological hump that we automatically get into when we look at pediatric care. So this podcast is going to be a two-part podcast. And originally, I was going to record this with Tyler. Uh, we were going to kind of tag team this. But then we started looking at different aspects of this. And I think it's important that we divide this into two podcasts. So I'm going to do part one. He's going to do part two, but he's going to specifically focus on the Hamilton T1. We know the Hamilton T1 is a pressure-delivered ventilator. It is a ventilator that specifically is pressure-driven, meaning we have no true volume breath. Every breath is pressure-initiated or pressure-driven. It may be volume-targeted, but it is not a true volume breath. And so there's a big, big difference when it comes to this podcast when we look at specifically that ventilator. So I'm going to focus on ventilators that are both volume and pressure. So that means the provider can actually select a volume breath or if they choose, they can select a pressure breath. So that's, you know, the Eagle, the Impact, the Revell, the LTV 1000, 1200, 
the Draeger Oxylog 3000. Lots and lots of vents out there that will fall into the category of what I'm discussing. So the topic is the silent killers in pediatric mechanical ventilation. So let's start off with a little case. We have a 10 kilo, one-year-old male with bronchiolitis RSV. He was brought in by mom and dad. Mom and dad stated that he has been a healthy little guy for, for you know his entire life, for that one year. Hasn't really had any problems. Started having some upper respiratory type symptoms, a lot of mucus production, a little bit of a cough, and started declining. So they decided to take him in. Um, doctor immediately diagnosed him with bronchiolitis RSV. And they start working him up. They start giving him some humidified um, nebs. Uh, they give him one uh, albuterol nebulizer treatment, which really doesn't do anything. Uh, right? We know bronchiolitis, the big thing with bronchiolitis, it's more about good positioning, fluid management, isolation, um, and humidified normal saline. Right? Get those secretions loosened up and then suctioning. That is the key aspect of treating a little guy with bronchiolitis. This little guy starts declining, so they opt to transfer, and the ER physician, after some reluctance, decides to intubate. So they intubate with a 4-OET tube. It is a cuffed tube, and they're ventilating him with a BVM. So the flight crew is called for this transfer. When they arrive, right, they are using a Revell ventilator. Based on their current guidelines, they're, they're asked to always apply a filter. Uh, the referring physician has ordered an HME. Uh, if you don't know what an HME is, an HME is a, a heat and moisture exchanger. So this is for tracheal humidification. Very, very important to keep those cilia, um, that airway, nice and moist. And so... There are some problems with the filter. There's some problems maybe with this HME, and there may be some problems with this entitled CO2 that we're going to see. And obviously, they do have an entitled CO2 device applied for good waveform capnography. We're not talking about a colorimetric device. We're talking about good, perfect entitled CO2. So they set the ventilator up. Ventilator is set up in SIMV. They're going to use a tidal volume at 6 mils per kilo. So 10 kilo, one-year-old male is going to get a tidal volume starting out at 60 mils. They're going with a respiratory rate of 24, which is probably pretty intrinsic for that age. Their immediate setting on PEEP and FIO2, they go 5 a PEEP, and they set their FIO2 at 50%. This baby has a SAT of 95% when they arrive, so they don't really feel like it's necessary to go 100%. Their initial PIP is 33, PPLAT is 18. So both those numbers are within normal limits. We know that our PIP, you know, most companies are going 35 or greater is something that you want to look at and focus on. We know a PPLAT greater than 30 is also an area we want to focus on. So both of these numbers are within normal limits. Obviously, a PIP, though, of 33, that's a little higher than normal, but that does kind of go into this disease process. We know we have those little airways, those bronchioles are constricted with mucus, and, and that's the whole aspect of treating these, these babies is getting that mucus out. If we calculated their minute ventilation based on that 
tidal volume is 60, respiratory rate of 24. We have a minute ventilation a little over 1,400. So 1,440 is what our minute ventilation is, or we could say 1.4 liters a minute. They immediately notice a problem. They move the patient over to their ventilator, and within one minute, this baby starts desaturating. Uh, they're noticing they have no chest rise and fall. They are getting a good antidotal CO2 waveform, and so they're they're confident that they have a good, consistent ET tube that's placed correctly. But what's happening? So again, I've seen this happen over and over and over. I've read chart after chart after chart with this exact same verbiage. About one minute, they notice no chest rise and fall. So they're trying to troubleshoot the ventilator. We see desaturation. Remember, 93%, if we were to look at a desaturation curve, and that curve is much steeper for an infant or a pediatric than it is for an adult. But 93% is where we fall off that cliff. So we have to be very, very careful in these situations. It's really easy to have that, that task fixation where we focus on the equipment. And we forget that we have a baby. We have a patient sitting right in front of us. So I think we have to always be cognizant of that, not get fixated on that task, not focus specifically on the ventilator, but realize, okay, we have a desaturation. Something isn't right. So obviously we're going to take the patient off the ventilator. We're going to go back to our VVM ventilations, hook that up to oxygen. At this point, we're going to crank that up to 15 liters per minute. And we're going to give 100%. We're going to make sure we're not over bagging. We're going to make sure we're going to be gentle. We don't want to push volume in that stomach. We also want to make sure we have an NG or OG2 placed at this point. Very, very important. You've heard me say that over and over on other podcasts, especially for our pediatric population. We need to have that NG or OG2 placed. Got to be able to decompress that stomach consistently. So why is this happening? Why do we have a problem? They note that during that desaturation phase, they're only getting exhaled tidal volumes of 5 to 8 mils. 5 to 8 mils. Well, why is that happening? We're putting a tidal volume in at 60 mils. We're only getting back 5 to 8 mils. Why? Something's off. So they make the correct choice. They take the baby off the ventilator. They start bagging the patient. The patient starts coming back to a normal SpO2. But at this point, we have to start diagnosing the problem. We need to go through our dope mnemonic, make sure all of our connections are, are on, make sure our oxygen is turned on, make sure all the simple things are fixed. So let's go through some areas of concern and look at specifically why is this probably happening? Let's start out number one. If we were to look at these ventilators, the majority of ventilators in the industry, if they're both volume and pressure, if we were going to start in a volume breath, the lowest volume breath you could deliver is 50 mils. And this is where I've seen this happen over and over. I think there's definitely an, a, a, an area of concern when I look at flight crews in general. We don't feel comfortable with pressure control ventilation. We're scared to death of it. And I think we're scared to death of it because, number one, we're not putting a tidal volume in the ventilator. We don't have a true tidal volume, so that makes us uncomfortable. And I, so I think the automatic is to go right to that volume breath. You know it's there. You know that ventilator is going to give that volume breath every single time. 
And in a pressure breath, we know that that is variable based on the compliance. So in this situation, because we have the ability to give a volume breath greater than 50 mils, this flight crew chooses to go volume, right? We're giving a 60 mil volume breath. But this is where the problem lies. So let's kind of move through this. The first thing we have to understand is that every single ventilator, again, I'm going to use some of these terms loosely. It's important for you to go back to your current program, look at your specific ventilator, and figure out what each ventilator you're using has as, as far as these numbers. I can tell you from the Carefusion side what those numbers are. I think the big part of the industry is using a Revell and LTV 1200. I know there's companies out there that use the Impact. There's companies out there that are using the Hamilton T1. I think those four ventilators are the core of the industry. Number one, we have to understand that a pediatric circuit, if we were to specifically look at a pediatric circuit for care fusion, for example, we have a dead space loss that's considered mechanical, meaning that we have a compliance loss in that circuit of one mil times your peak inspiratory pressure. So every centimeter of water of inspiratory pressure, well, let me say that, let me say that in a different way. For every one centimeter of water of your PIP, peak inspiratory pressure, you have a loss of one mil or one cc. So that is essentially to think of it this way. If you're putting out a volume breath, the ventilator puts out that volume breath at the ventilator prior to the circuit. That volume has to travel all the way through the circuit, reaches the Y, moves through that Y, that's where that flow sensor is, and then it goes into the ET tube where it travels down into the airways of the patient. During that time of travel, based on the inspiratory pressure, that compliance of that circuit expands. You, you actually can see the circuit expanding, and you're going to lose volume meaning the volume that's put out by the ventilator is not going to be the same when it reaches the ET tube in a volume breath. So when you are looking at a pediatric patient, this is a big, big deal. In an adult patient, if we're giving a 500 mil tidal volume breath, an adult circuit loses 2 mils times your PIP. So if you had a PIP of 30, that would be a 60 mil loss in that circuit that's not going to reach the ET tube. But because maybe you're giving 500 mils every single breath, the patient is still getting over 400 mils to the ET tube. And an adult patient can do just fine with that. You take that pediatric patient that's only getting 60 mils out of the ventilator, and you're already losing 33 of that before you lose you hit, you hit that ET tube, you have 27 mils left at that ET tube. So you're already underventilating that patient by half. Okay? So that is one of the biggest, biggest problems when we look at pediatric mechanical ventilation when you're using a volume breath is what is that PIP? I mean, if you only have PIPs of 10, that's not a big deal. But we know with bronchiolitis or any... You know, any obstructive airway with higher P 
peak inspiratory pressures, you're going to have higher pips. That's going to be detrimental. We have to really, really be cognizant of that. So automatically, we have dropped the tidal volume at the point of the Y, at that flow sensor, when it enters the ET tube to 27 mils, just based on the compliance loss or what's called mechanical dead space. All right. Number two, our entitled CO2. Entitled CO2, we know is a must. We have to have entitled CO2. And I do a lot of expert witness cases. I work for lots of different defense attorneys trying to represent you and I. And I can't tell you, though, how many airway cases I look at. And there's a common theme. The common theme is not using entitled CO2 waveform, using a color metric device. And I can't stress, I tell this in our review classes, every single airway problem or death I've seen in these cases have been related to not identifying a dislodged ET tube because of using a color metric device. Every single one of them. There's, there's, it's a hundred percent. So I really think it's a must to have entitled CO2. But with that, when we look at pediatrics, there are a lot of NICU teams that are not using entitled CO2, right? Side stream or using any type of device because of this dead space loss. So what do I mean by that? Well, if you look at the package, you look at a disposable entitled CO2 that you see on, on all these monitors, life packs, um, Zoles, the X series, any of those, they use pretty much the same thing. You're losing 50 mils a minute in volume. So that's a minute. So if we divided that by 60 seconds to get a, a per second loss, that's about 0.83 mils. So we'll just say three quarters of a, of a mil every single minute, or excuse me, every single second that we're losing. So I'll say that again. In entitled CO2, we lose 50 mils a minute. We divide that into 60 seconds. You're losing 0.83 mils a second. Again, that adult patient, that's no big deal, right? That's arbitrary. Nothing that we're going to need to worry about. But when you're looking at a pediatric, especially the lower you go in weight, this is a bigger problem. Next, think about the HME. An HME is something that I've seen over and over and over as well. These are very, very important in these patients. There's positives, but I also think there's negatives. So these HMEs, again, these are tracheal humidification devices. They, depending on the device, again, I'm going to use a range. For my research, 25 to 45 mils a minute of loss. So we're looking at about a half to three quarters of a, of a mil per second. Again, everything adds up when you're talking about an infant. Now, what are some problems with these HMEs? We know HMEs will increase your PIP. Okay, so we got to go back to number one. For every centimeter of peak inspiratory pressure, we're going to lose one mil if we're in a volume breath. So if we're using an HME, that's automatically going to raise our PIP even higher, which is going to translate to even more mechanical dead space loss. It will alter entitled CO2 waveforms. It can lead to hypercapnia. So just based on that gradient, it can increase that, that, that retainment of CO2. It can lead to increased work of breathing. Now, one of the things that I've realized in my practice when I've used HMEs, 
where you can solve this is if we look at a mode of ventilation, my favorite mode of ventilation against mine, um, I think it's also a very positive way to ventilate a patient in the transport environment is SIMV. And with SIMV, we know we apply pressure support, which augments, reduces dead space, and it gives them a greater ability to take a breath during those spontaneous periods when they take a spontaneous breath. Well, in my experience, what I've, what I've done in those situations is I just increase my pressure support a little bit. And that oftentimes will overcome any increased work of breathing that you see with an HME applied. So now let's go to our filters. I have to say that this is one area that I oftentimes will remove, especially on kids. You're gonna lose 90 mils a minute on average based on the device. So that's one and a half mils every second. So you apply that filter. That filter usually is placed right after on the outside of the ventilator, then you hook your circuit to it. So 90 mils a minute, that's a huge, huge amount of dead space loss. So when we look at that, we have 32 from the circuit for mechanical dead space. That HME is about three quarters of a mil. That filter is one and a half mils per second. And then the entitled CO2 is 0.83 mils a second. So that's a 35 mil dead space loss. Now this is before we ever get to that, that point of delivering that breath down into the little airways. So we delivered 60 out of the ventilator. We already see from this patient that we're only getting exhale tidal volumes of five to eight mils. So essentially you're not getting much. So that makes, that makes you have to look at a few things. Number one, are you, do you have a leak problem? Whenever you see a big difference in volume delivered and what your exhale tidal volume is, always obviously go through your dope mnemonic, make sure your equipment is correct. But leak is going to be one of my first things I'm looking at. So that ET tube, we said it was cuffed. Is that ET tube cuff, is it inflated correctly? Is it blown? Are you getting leak around that cuff? So I would definitely confirm that. I may even pull my laryngoscope out and actually visually check and, and look and make sure that we are good to go. When we specifically look at those patients, how are you going to then segue and identify which piece of equipment do we have to have? Which piece of equipment is mandatory, is a must? For me, I feel like entitled CO2 waveform capnography is a must. Do we need the HME? Well, probably. Do we need the filter? Again, my opinion, I think that is one piece of equipment I'm probably going to immediately remove. So are there any other areas of dead space that we have to consider? If we've ruled out leak, if we have a good cuff, we know we have a, a vent circuit that is good, right? We've done a leak test on it. We've, we've troubleshooted our equipment. Are there any other areas? Well, we know that we have anatomical dead space. Anatomical dead space is calculated by one mil for every pound of ideal body weight. So if you have a 10 kilo baby, that baby looks normal, 
that's about a 22 mil dead space loss. Now that is a loss that's in the chest, in the upper airways. That's essentially the volume that doesn't contribute to gas exchange. We all have anatomical dead space. So just to kind of bring my point and highlight this, we have 35 mils of mechanical dead space. We have 22 mils of anatomical dead space. So that's 57 mils. I mean, that's the majority of what we're delivering. So as you can see, that's a huge, huge amount. And if we calculated that over an entire minute, that dead space accounts for 1,368 mils of minute ventilation, or we could say 1.3 liters. Well, what was our initial minute ventilation? Our initial minute ventilation was 1.4. So we're only giving them a small, small fraction of what they need. So there's no wonder why this baby is decompensating. So why is this happening? How can we alleviate this? Again, it goes back to volume versus pressure. If you've taken our vent class, one of the things that I say is I don't use pressure control ventilation on, on the majority of my patients just to do that. I did that over time. I became very comfortable with pressure, and I did that because I wanted to make sure that I was confident and competent with that. I never want to get in a situation where I have to use it. And what do I mean by that? Why would I have to use it? Well, if I have a pediatric that needs a ventilator applied and their weight gives me a tidal volume less than 50 mils on any of the ventilators I've ever used, I have to go with pressure. To me, it, that is not the point in time where I have to struggle or want to struggle through pressure control ventilation. I want to have that mastered. So I just told myself early on, this is an area that I want to become good at. And again, it's not that difficult, right? You're essentially targeting a volume. You're, you're calculating your, your volume just like you would any patient, but you're getting that volume by a pressure. We talked about this in the podcast I did with Mike Herman, where we looked at the five hottest questions in mechanical ventilation. And then Tyler came back and he did a kind of follow-up to that. And so we had a lot of good discussion is volume better, is pressure better, etc. So I highly recommend going back and listening to those. I'm not going to get into, you know, why I choose what I choose. When it comes to pediatrics, though, you almost have to go pressure. We just don't have any other way of delivering this breath. So when we look at this specifically, how would we set this up? This is solving the problem. All the flight crew has to do is stop for a second and think about what's going on. Why would a ventilator, which is very sophisticated, it's got all these added measures that you apply, why isn't it doing the job? Why is this baby desaturating? You take them off the ventilator, you put them on a VVM, and they start responding. That shouldn't happen. That's where you have to stop, not get tunnel vision. Remember that tax fixation? We want to stop for a second and think about why is that BVM benefiting this patient? What can I do? So this is where pressure control ventilation comes in. Number one, you have no mechanical dead space to worry about. Why? Because in pressure, essentially what you're doing is you're targeting a volume. You're still calculating in your head, hey, this baby is 10 kilos 
we're going to start with six mils per kilo. That means we're targeting a 60 mil tidal volume breath. But we're doing that a little differently. All you're doing is now you're putting your ventilator in pressure and you're using what's called inspiratory pressure. So we're going to set our inspiratory pressure. Let's say we'll start at 10 centimeters of water. We're going to let the ventilator deliver the breath. Everything else is the same. The baby is still going to be placed in SIMV, respirated at 24, PEEP of 5, FIO2. At this point, as long as our SATs are appropriate after using BVM ventilations, we're going to stay at 50%. If you still hadn't had those SATs up, then I would definitely crank that up to 100% at this point. We're going to let the ventilator deliver a breath. And remember, how does that, how does a pressure breath work? Pressure equals volume. And when we look at delivering a pressure breath, we're targeting that volume. But that volume is going to be relative to the compliance of that lung. And that's why pressure is such a beneficial way of delivering a breath is because it's never going to cause over distension, barotrauma. Um, you know, it, it's going to be gentle. So when we look at this specifically, we calculate and look at the exhale tidal volume. If we deliver that breath at 10 centimeters of water, we're watching the exhale tidal volume. So that's a parameter on your ventilator that you're going to have to monitor consistently. So let's say at 10 centimeters of water, they get an initial exhale tidal volume of 35 mils. Essentially, that's telling you you're getting a tidal volume based on an inspiratory pressure of 10 of 35 mils. So all we have to do is we have to think pressure equals volume. We're going to turn our pressure up. So they turn their pressure up to 15. I think it's best to go up by 2 to 3. They chose to go up by 5. So they turn that up to 15, and now they're getting consistent pressures of 15, and that's giving you exhale tidal volumes of 62 to 65 mils. So there's no mechanical dead space. And the reason why that's happening, as I started to discuss a second ago, is in a volume breath, remember I said the volume is delivered out of the ventilator, and you have that volume that's traveling through the circuit until it reaches the Y, goes down the ET tube, and into the patient. Well, in a pressure breath, the ventilator senses the inspiratory pressure. It terminates that pressure based on the flow sensor that is at the Y. So any compliance loss that you would have through that vent circuit is accounted for. It's already happened. So once the pressure is sensed at 15 centimeters of water at the Y, right, the flow sensor, the, the, the breath is terminated at that point. So any compliance loss is already accounted for. So that 32 to 33 uh, mils that we saw based on that PIP is now not a problem. Should we then consistently watch Yes, absolutely. We want to consistently watch that exhale tidal volume. That's a parameter that we always, always, always are looking at. That's the only way you can truly tell what your tidal volumes are. So that is definitely something you're always wanting to see on the screen. In my experience, patients that are on pressure will, will benefit. They'll actually get better where you're going to start seeing those exhale tidal volumes increase. 10 minutes later, a inspiratory pressure of 15 maybe giving you exhale tidal volumes of 70, it's because the lung is able to just kind of relax. It just seems like patients seem to do better. They're at more, you know, 
more of an ease. They're, you're not having to use as much medication. They just seem more comfortable. So let's move to the HME. Should we remove the HME? I think in a situation like this, if you're truly having a lot of problems, I think the knee-jerk reaction is to absolutely remove the HME. And I'm not saying that in some cases we shouldn't, but I want to also highlight some areas that there's some research out there. I'm going to put these different research articles in the show notes. And one of them really highlights the clinical consequences of removing that HME. And it showed that after 15 minutes without any other device applied for artificial humidification, that there could be some serious complications related to that cilia, that endothelial injury. Um, it actually can cause increased airway resistance, hypothermia. Remember, these babies have no way of regulating their heat. They have you know, very, very poor functioning hypothalamuses. They can't regulate their heat because of no insulating brown fat, etc. The younger they are, the worse off they are. So that humidification really aids in temperature regulation. So I would say that the HME is one of those things on that initial um, setup, right? You've already had a problem. You've already had a decompensation. I don't think it's wrong to remove that, but I definitely would, once we get the ventilator set back up, we're in pressure, we identify, all right, everything is good, add that. Any dead space from this point on, because we're in pressure, is going to be after the Y. So it's going to account for some dead space, but all you have to do, guys, is turn up the pressure a little bit more, and you're going to overcome that, right? Increase the volume a little bit, and you're going to overcome that dead space loss. If you think about it, what we were talking about is only three-quarters of a mil, 0.75 every second. So your increase in volume doesn't have to be that much. Should we remove the entitled CO2? I say no. That's my opinion. I think this is something you have to you know, think about, what's your program guidelines saying. I think there's, there's lots of ways to ventilate this patient in, in pressure. We can do a lot of little things. Entitled CO2, especially in kids that have uncuffed tubes, it's so easy to dislodge these. So I would, this would probably be the last thing that I would remove if I did remove it. Um, I had a flight crew up in New York um, actually send me some videos and some pictures where they're, they've tested putting that entitled CO2 on the exhalation side um, in between um, prior to the Y. So essentially it's still on the exhalation side, it's just not after the Y, and that seemed to help. Um, they were still getting a waveform. They were still able to identify, you know, that they had a good number, a good, you know, tracing. So that's definitely something. And I'll actually put a picture of that in our show notes. What about looking at specifically removing the filter? Again, I think that is one of the first things I would do is remove that filter. That filter accounts for quite a bit of dead space loss. Um, if we go back, remember that that dead space loss is significant at 1.5 mils per second. So I definitely would remove that to try to aid in getting um, a reduction of dead space. The last thing is look at specifically 
if we go back to the HME, you can actually lower and, and get a smaller HME, but there also are some problems. Remember I said that there are some problems with HMEs as far as increased airway resistance, um, retaining that CO2. So if you add a smaller device, you're going to increase the resistance to gas flow. You may increase the work of breathing. Um, and so I don't really know if that is going to be that beneficial. Again, I really think that the true fix here, especially in these babies, is to go to pressure control ventilation. And I would say that I'm going to go pressure control ventilation on all kids probably under 20 kilos. We're talking about some pretty consistent um, emails that I've received, charts that I've reviewed based on the same exact thing, starting in volume and not understanding the compliance loss in the circuit, not understanding all the dead space loss that you have with each one of these small little devices that are applied and how that accumulates to the majority of the tidal volume that you're delivering. As I said, I would highly recommend that you start transporting patients in pressure control ventilation, even patients that are very stable, not meaning that they absolutely would need that in a normal setting, but that's the time to practice. That's the time to move them over. Um, move them over to pressure. Evaluate that XL tidal volume. Get comfortable. Make it something that is not a problem. You don't want this to be the big elephant in the room. You don't want to be stressing the entire time heading to this patient. If you get a report that you have a pediatric that is intubated, I guarantee you're going to be stressed. You're like, holy cow, we're going to have to have a, you know, apply this ventilator on this one-year-old. I hope I do it right. I hope the ventilator doesn't have any problems, but it all comes back to practice. It comes back to being comfortable with your equipment and playing with it. Pull it out on, on shift. We have 24 hours in a shift. A lot of, a lot of you guys may be working 12s now, but we have lots of downtime. So pull it out. It doesn't, doesn't take a lot. It takes 30 minutes, maybe an hour. Even if that is once or twice a week, I tell you, I stress it. It is absolutely imperative to practice. So that's all I have for this podcast. I hope this was enlightening. If you have any questions, please email me at eric.bauer at flatbridgehead.com. Um, again, Tyler will be releasing part two, uh, probably right after the first of the year. And uh, hopefully, again, this answers a lot of questions. If you, again, need any help, please email me. And uh, hope everybody has a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. We'll talk to you soon. This has been a production of the Flight Bridge Ed Podcast, leading the way in pre-hospital critical care and emergency medicine education.